Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at jury attributes and their impact on trial decisions. Specifically, we'll focus on aspects of the jury selection process and qualities of the jury and its members. We will dispel some myths along the way based on experimental research and empirical evidence. If you want a first-hand account of the jury selection and trial process, please go listen to episode 3. Jury selection and the courtroom process in general is often mired in secrecy and myth. It's easy enough to get information about how it all works, but most people don't get a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, until they have served on a jury. Why is it that the jury process isn't common knowledge? And why do legal experts fall into stereotype fallacies so easily when there's ample evidence refuting their beliefs? You would think lawyers would want to stay up to date on the research to be able to select the best jury for their client. Unfortunately, like with a lot of experts, people tend to overestimate their expertise and place more trust on their personal experiences, placing anecdotal evidence above empirical research. Let's start with one of the most basic aspects of a jury, its size. In the United States, criminal trials have typically always required 12 jurors. In 1970, the Supreme Court ruled it was possible to only have six jurors, but no less than six. The justification for the number six came from Williams v. Florida in 1970 which stated that six was a large enough number, quote, to promote group deliberation free from outside attempts at intimidation and to provide a fair possibility for obtaining a representative cross-section of the community, especially if the requirement of unanimity is retained, and certainly the reliability of the jury as a fact finder hardly seems likely to be a function of its size, end quote. Experimental research on this topic indicates that more is better. Jury effectiveness decreases with decreasing size. That doesn't mean that smaller isn't better for some things. Smaller groups had more equal participation amongst group members and were more cohesive overall. Members of smaller groups were also more satisfied with their deliberations. However, where it arguably most counts, larger juries had more advantages directly linked to decision-making. Larger groups deliberated more vigorously and recalled more evidence from the trial as a group. They made more consistent and predictable decisions, whereas smaller juries made more errors both ways, so they were more likely to convict someone who was innocent and acquit someone who was guilty. Conformity-based research supports the use of larger juries as well. In larger groups, you're more likely to have an ally in terms of your personal beliefs, so if you disagree with the majority opinion, you have a better chance at there being someone who agrees with you in that larger group. This can help minorities resist social pressure. Larger juries are more likely to contain minority group members as well. They often spend more time deliberating, and ultimately they make fewer errors in their decisions. 
In terms of reliability and validity, those tend to increase as group size increases. The science supports a larger jury, though that doesn't mean a jury of 20 or 30 would be better than a jury of 12. At a certain point, you lose the capability to effectively communicate and collaborate when the group is too large. Despite there being clear evidence that 12 is better than 6, the Supreme Court still stands by a six-person jury, though the decision must be unanimous if you do decide to use only six people. What about the attributes of the jurors themselves? There's a really tedious process of selecting jurors, but are we basing our decisions on reliable beliefs? Everyone here in the United States is guaranteed an impartial jury under the Sixth Amendment. But how can we know that the jury is impartial? The first step is to sample a representative portion of the community. There are also many opportunities for potential jurors to be weeded out for obvious prejudices and biases. However, many people don't admit to their biases, and in a lot of cases, we're not aware of our own biases. This is supported by research findings where People are often unaware of their attitudes that have a direct effect on their decision-making behaviors. To make matters worse, the effects of stereotypes and strict beliefs on behavior are amplified when jurors are under pressure to make a difficult decision. Even if we do manage to get a representative sample of people who claim to be and appear to be unbiased, the decisions made by the prosecution and defense can be biased both on inaccurate assumptions. There are many misconceptions about jurors based on their demographics, including race, gender, age, and even marital status. The thing about stereotypes is that they are based somewhat in truth. Some event precipitated that belief that's then overgeneralized to an entire group of people. Stereotypes are then strengthened by any occurrence that corroborates that belief. So, for example, if you believe women are bad drivers, every time you see a woman driving erratically or what you would consider poorly, then those instances would strengthen your belief. The problem is that feeds into confirmation bias where you're only paying attention to those instances that corroborate the stereotype. It could very well be that there are just as many men around you driving poorly, but you only notice when it's a woman because of your pre-existing belief that they are bad drivers. There are many stereotypes about juror attributes that many attorneys still believe and buy into during the jury selection process. We'll cover a handful of those attributes next. The first one I want to talk about today is age. Many people believe older jurors are more lenient However, the research doesn't reveal any significant relationship between age and verdict. Research on civil cases has shown middle-aged jurors to be more sympathetic to the plaintiff compared to younger and older jurors when making liability decisions. Gender is another attribute selection is centered around. The myths surrounding gender are that female jurors should be avoided especially if the defendant is an attractive woman. Other common beliefs revolve around the assumption that women are distrustful of other women. So there's a belief that you should select women jurors as a 
defense attorney if the prosecution has a female witness because those jurors would be more distrustful of that witness. Other advice has included selecting male jurors for female plaintiffs and selecting female jurors for male plaintiffs. Research on this topic with mock jurors has found gender to be correlated with verdicts where women were more likely to convict men overall. Women were less likely to convict a woman accused of killing a man who had previously abused her. Other research has found an interaction between gender of the juror and gender of the attorney, where attorneys were more successful if their case was presented to a same-sex juror. Male attorneys were more successful presenting their case to male jurors when using an aggressive presentation style, whereas outcomes for women were not affected by presentation style at all. Another curious belief is to never accept jurors with occupations starting with the letter P. Seems pretty far-reaching. Some I can understand. Psychologist, psychiatrist, professor. Others, not so much. Plumber, painter, poet? There's a severe lack of empirical evidence for this claim, but it has persisted for many years. What the research does show is that having higher socioeconomic status is associated with a greater conviction rate in criminal cases, though it's important to note the opposite has also been found. The research is also inconsistent for education level. The fact that there are competing outcomes points to some other factor or factors that contribute more meaningfully to decision making. One explanation could be that occupation status is correlated with whether a person becomes the jury for a person. More educated, higher SES, higher occupation status individuals are more likely to take on that role and in that way are more likely to influence the opinion of other jurors, providing that indirect link between occupation and verdict. Because there are so few controlled studies, however, that look at occupation, it's really hard to make any definitive statement on the matter. One of the most stereotyped jury attributes is race. Many of the beliefs people have are purely anecdotal, where they blame unpopular verdicts on the racial composition of the jury. One myth is that the quote-unquote emotionality of the individuals differs based on their race, which would then affect their decision-making during a trial. Emotionality more generally refers to the ability that we have as humans to empathize with each other. Some groups thought to be higher in emotionality include African Americans, Irish, um, and Italians, while those who are considered lower in emotionality include Slavic and Nordic groups. To be clear, none of this is based on any empirical evidence. There's some evidence for differences between groups in terms of affect or positive emotions, but the belief is that emotionality would make someone pro-plaintiff in terms of their decision-making, which there's no corroboration for. There are so many other factors that go into making a decision on a verdict that race probably isn't a predominant factor. Another belief centers around same-race sympathy. So there is research that does show jurors are more lenient toward defendants who share a similar background and more punitive to those who have a different background, specifically in terms of race. 
This makes sense. It's easier for us to empathize with someone who looks like us. Generally speaking, white jurors are more punitive toward black defendants compared to white defendants. Except when the trial content is racially centered. Kind of ironic. Interestingly, when race is at the forefront of a trial, white people are suddenly hyper aware of their prejudice and don't want to appear biased in any way. They're so uncomfortable with the thought of possibly being perceived as racist that they act not as racist. If only we could feel that way all of the time. Now, full disclosure, I am white. Um, and I, I think it's really sad that a lot of people don't take the time to become more self-aware of our unconscious biases. We all have them. So that we're constantly questioning ourselves in every situation. Not just the ones where we care more about what someone thinks about us than about another human being. But I digress. Other research on the racial distribution of juries shows that mixed-race juries have somewhat increased performance, but are more likely to experience interpersonal conflict and low morale. Attorneys still seem to use race as a selection factor, even though they can't technically use it as the sole rationale for excluding an individual. And last but not least, we have physical attractiveness. This might seem kind of odd to the listeners as one of the attributes, and my students certainly got a kick out of it. But attractiveness, whether we want to admit it or not, plays a really large role in the way that we socialize and the consequences of our actions. Attractive children are more frequently excused by adults for aggressive behavior compared to unattractive children. And attractive students caught cheating received less punishment compared to unattractive students. Attractiveness opens the doors to employment, gives you a better shot at getting that job or a promotion, and it leads to better reported mental health and psychological well-being. Attractiveness can also, it seems, lead to better outcomes in the courtroom, where attractive plaintiffs are often awarded more money than unattractive plaintiffs in personal injury suits. Disturbingly, being attractive also has led to more lenient sentences for killing pedestrians while driving intoxicated compared to unattractive people. But attractiveness isn't always an advantage. If a juror believes that the defendant is trying to manipulate people with their attractiveness or use it to their advantage, the verdict will not be in their favor. There are many opportunities for everyone, including myself, to rely on stereotypes when making decisions. For the jury selection process, this may result in a jury that does not serve your client in the best way. Your assumptions may backfire. You may end up with jurors who hold very rigid, unconscious biases. The more we can emphasize controlled experiments and reliance on reliable research, the better decisions we will make. Thank you for listening to episode 15. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hit that subscribe button so you can have access to the newest episodes right when they're released. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people can find the podcast. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in this episode and all episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Ann.